Welcome back. You're listening to In Situ Science, where each episode we meet a different scientist and find out what a life in science is like behind the scenes. I'm your host, James O'Hanlon, and this episode I'm joined by physicist, agricultural scientist, and distinguished professor, David Lamb. David, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks, James. It's a pleasure to be here, I think. <laughs> how, do, how does one become a distinguished professor? It's a very good question. Um, it, was a, it, it was something that I never sought. Um, it, was an, it was a wonderful honour that was bestowed upon me by the University of New England. So mm-hmm. I think at the end of the day, I was rewarded for the ultimate reward of enjoying myself for my last 25 years. <laughs> so you've been at UNE for 25 years, have you? No, not UNE. I mean, I was a student here in the 80s. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a, a physics degree and went on to do a PhD in gaseous electronics or sort of high voltage engineering. Mm-hmm. Um, but then left for about 10 years um, in the early 90s, uh, picked up my first appointment at Charles Sturt University. I always loved regional universities, mm-hmm. uh, always look for an excuse not to have to go to the city ones, um, <laughs> and was there at Charles Sturt University for about eight years and then returned here in 2002. So I guess minus the eight years in between, I've been UNE pretty well right from the beginning of my tertiary career, education and my tertiary career. Yeah, yeah. Well, why don't we start talking about your sordid past as a physicist? <laughs> what sort of what area of physics were you in way back in the day? Well, put it this way: the reason I wanted to do physics because was because I wanted to get in the air force and fly planes, fly right. jets. Love the idea. Like most uh, kids of my age and and my background were at the time in the um, in the seventies and early eighties. But I needed a physics degree because I couldn't get in straight from high school mm-hmm. and I didn't make the grades. So um, I picked up a, 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 a physics degree here at UNE again because it was in the bush. It was the only rural and regional university of note at the time, mm-hmm. certainly offering no sort of BSc type physics degrees. Thinking, right, well, I'll just get started on that journey and, and keep having a crack into the, the Australian Defence Force. But after about two years at it, I fell in love with it as a subject in its own right. Mm. And, um, and I really got hooked on physics. So I thought at the end of my degree, let's do a research year just to validate everything I'd learnt, put into action. And I wanted to do experimental research, so I got into plasma physics. I really wanted to play with mm-hmm. lasers, which were big at the time. But the, and this particular team were using lasers to probe the high-voltage environment um, in, in plasmas. So that was my, my step into plasma physics and uh, get what we call gaseous electronics. And having done my honours, I was fortunate to receive first class, open up the doorway to a Commonwealth Postgraduate Award, i.e. to do a PhD, and I thought, well, blow it, I've done one year, let's do a few more. <laughs> and I just kept doing more and more of it and getting hooked and hooked deeper and deeper into it. Yeah. And to be honest, I haven't looked back. So I have no idea what gaseous electronics is <laughs> well it was basically you know high voltage engineering really is around you know um uh, our high voltage electricity supply if you like mm-hmm. consider that you're working at fifty thousand volts plus um and um and out in the open air environment massive switch gear and so forth gaseous electronics is effectively looking in that same environment but in a much smaller scale so we're in the laboratory looking at very um small physically small um, phenomena that occur in the vicinity of those very high voltage environments and mm-hmm. so I, I guess it was a point of distinction from high voltage engineering this is really trying to understand the fundamental physics involved in gases when you subtract uh, sorry subject them to many many um, thousands of volts 
Yeah. And um, because they were responsible ultimately for breakdown events that occurred in switchgear, the crackling and whizzing that you hear at high voltage power lines overhead, and a whole range of allied phenomena, lightning, for example. So it was just a, a, a bringing physics to bear to look at some of these really way out phenomena. And so you were interested in it for the pure physics side of it, or were you always into, I guess, where this could be applied then? Always interested in the application, really. At the mm-hmm. end of the day, you know, um, lightning is all around us, so it was really understanding how electrical breakdown occurs in gases. And, of course, like I said earlier, you, you go stand under a high-voltage uh, power line and you could, on a misty day or early in the morning you can hear the whizzing and crackling, and that's mm. power, that's energy being lost, that's degrading the surface of the conductors, degrading the gas environment, producing ozone in the vicinity of them, and it was really an opportunity to just to understand them. So I was using some pretty cool tools in the lab. Mm-hmm. I was working in, in, in discharge chambers that we were, that we were um, lifting to about 20 or 30,000 volts. So it was a very hazardous environment to work in, and you really had to learn the hard way. You always keep one hand in your pocket when you're, <laughs> when you're in that environment. You don't wave both arms around. And it was a great chance to put lasers to work and, and some high-speed camera systems that I'd worked to develop, um, all in that really hazardous environment. So it was all about the applications. Mm-hmm. So at what point did you then start working on uh, remote sensing technologies? Well, when I graduated with my PhD from UNE, my first appointment as an academic, because I always wanted to be an academic, mm-hmm. I, love the, I love the academic environment in universities. Today, of course, it's totally different to what it was even then. In, in a in, good way. <laughs> well, it's challenging. There's lots of fantastic opportunities around industry engagement and mm. industry-related research, which is what I've been doing for the last, I guess, the last 20 years. But no, it was a different, it was a more relaxed, more academic environment. People had time to sit and reflect and think deep and, and learn. Now there's a lot of work on the go. It's really mm. quick, really rushed. I have to say, it's just the nature of the work. Our workloads are quite high compared to what I believe they were back in the 80s. Mm. You had a lot of time to reflect. But um, my first appointment was at Charles Sturt University, and that was a university with a very strong commitment to agricultural R&D and mm-hmm. agricultural education. And I was down there teaching physics to, to, to ag students, to, to grape and wine science students, to nursing students, to teachers... And, um, and I really wanted to find myself a research outlet. I couldn't get into plasma physics down there. They just didn't have the gear, didn't have the labs. <laughs> and so um, because of their focus on agriculture, for example, and my interest in camera systems and imaging that I'd built for the high-voltage laboratory environment up here at UNE, I thought, oh, well, let's get some of these camera systems in planes and go look at crops. And there happened to be a prototype system that had been built down there. So I found myself very quickly sitting in the back of a Cessna <laughs> flying around with a colour infrared airborne video system, taking photos of crops and looking at the infrared imagery, scratching my head, wondering what on earth is all that in the crop? I couldn't see it when I looked out the window. And, um, and that sort of was a part and parcel of my journey into remote sensing and agriculture. It was just a perfect time to be working in that area. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting from an interest in lasers and pure physics, you've You've moved your way into a career in agricultural science and innovation. Was that ever a, a plan? <laughs> well, put it this way. I always wanted to... I went to university because I wanted to fly planes. <laughs> and, um, and Charles at University, within about two years, I was in the back of a plane. And within two years of that later, I was in the front of a plane. Uh, the, the university supported me in getting my private pilot's license because really? at the end of the day, it was simply a work health and safety issue. I was in the back of a plane. There was one pilot up front what if 
So, yeah, yeah. Um, so I also became a pilot in my own right, so I got to fly. I love physics, and this was all about putting physics to work. Mm. Sensors and devices that look at crops from above, look at soils from above, um, the yield monitors that were being built to go on harvesters to track the yield of grain as we were stripping it from the crops on the go, the newly available global positioning systems, GPS, all of this was just a wonderful breadbasket of technology and physics in action. Mm. So, you know, to get into ag tech and what we call precision ag in the mid-1990s when GPS selective availability was turned off when we had access to sensors that we could put in the aircraft we had access to sensors that we could put on the soil and in harvesters it was a perfect storm mm. for a physicist so to be honest i was in the right place at the right time with the right interest which was to get out bush and stay outdoors mm. and to fly a plane <laughs> and so it was just a perfect combination so i've been in it ever since and i haven't looked back Good, I've got to think about what I can get the university to pay for me to do. What's something fun I've always wanted to do? Well, nowadays I think it would be risk managed out of the system, um, to be honest. But at the time, it was an essential requirement. I mean, we were in aircraft. Now you can fly most of the sensors that we used to fly in, in a little drone mm. yeah, that you can pull out of the boot of your car and launch and, and off you go. But in the 90s, we were putting these sensors, um, and I've got one just behind you where you're sitting. It's It weighs about... 20 kilos, that black box with four cameras in it. Looks like a giant Lego brick. It is. It looks like something would kill you if it fell on you from out of a tree. (laughs) Um, Now you can carry that in the palm of your hand and just uh, clip it onto a little drone. So, But in in those days, crikey, it sounds old, doesn't it? But 20 years ago, these were big bits of gear that were sitting in the bellies of aircraft. Mm. So you mentioned precision agriculture. What's precision agriculture? Well, in the 90s, it was really simple. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> it was if you could if you hooked the GPS to it mm. and you could collect data on the go or you could take images from the air using a, an aircraft system or from a satellite. The satellites, of course, were up, even though they were a little less reliable and the imagery was of poorer quality than they are today. Then spatially enabled agriculture is what we really call it. That was what precision agriculture was. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, really, it is anything that uses the power of technology or dare I say digital, so hence data, um, anything that provides the ability to to monitor and manage um, agricultural production, whether it be in space, that is spatially, like the old precision ag across fields, or in time. Um, effectively, that's precision agriculture. So in other words, agriculture today really is precision agriculture. We're doing things with higher level of precision, with more, with a greater range of objective monitoring systems, and we're bringing data to life to help make decisions around how we manage our farms, how we manage our supply chains, even down to the food we eat and consume and sending signals back. That's all precision agriculture. Mm. It's just farming nowadays, farming and food production. Yeah, I guess it's kind of characterised as robotic tractors and drones and all that sort of stuff. But it's... oh, for sure, we, we've got our we've got our flagships you know we've got the things that grab everyone's imagination you know nanoparticles drones um autonomous systems or robots on the ground um you know blockchain the new way of doing safe and secure transactions um using the power of the cloud or the internet Mm -hmm. all of these are are popping up as sort of if you like little um canaries of of, you know flags of, of of which we build the precision ag message but at the heart of it all is still the the business and lifestyle of farming mm. and food production. Uh, it's just a, an, another name for another uh, another generation, I guess. 
And, and do you have personal experience farming, being a regional regional guy? Well, we've got a little block at home. I've got a little 40-acre block that we've got some cows on. And, you know, I wring my hands about my pasture and run bees and a few <laughs> other things. All the sorts of things that you would do if you had a hobby farm. Yeah. Of course, you have an old tractor that you chug around in. <laughs> but... um. But it, but throughout my family, in particular my wife's family, you know they've got farming families all over the all over the the, the northeast of the state, mm-hmm. um, and so I spent a lot of time um, you know, tic tacking with them. Of course, my own family has got a heritage in the Upper Murray, um, you know Talmomo, Dora Dora up up above where the Hume Weir is today, and so we've got a, a fairly strong heritage not only in my own family but certainly my wife's family in farming, and that's kept us. Uh, well and truly immersed in what farming means today and so yes I don't farm a big farm myself but we live on enough of a one and run enough of a little one to understand the key issues but we are living cheek by jowl with people all throughout our family and in our region. I'm always amazed meeting people up here that have full-time jobs and also keep Hobby farms, I feel like they're two full-time jobs on the road. <laughs> well, they can be. I mean, when you're fencing and you're throwing out fertiliser and you're, and you're mucking around with cattle, especially if you've got a lot of them, it's, it's a big job. But you know what? It's a, it's a thing that you look forward to come weekends. And, of course, at the end of the weekend, when you stump into work on a Monday morning, generally you're feeling pretty sore and sorry for yourself because <laughs> your work muscles you spent all week resting. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, working in the precision agriculture side of things... Yeah, we always hear about uh, potential for resistance to new ideas and new technologies in farming, particularly where you know these might be very long-established family farms and things like that. Do, do you think that's actually a thing? Are people resistant to these new approaches? Look, I think it's a it's a bit of a beat up. Put it this way: farmers are farmers are really adaptable and very savvy switched on people because at the end of the day they're always working in a difficult system under difficult conditions and they've got to make the best with what they've got at hand Mm. you know so at the end of the day farmers generally are out there and are succeeding because they are they are quick-witted and keen to try new things the the challenge we've got today though is that what's appearing in the marketplace what's appearing on the on the horizon in terms of new technology Mm is coming from a from an angle or from angles that they're not necessarily familiar with. You know, you know, you, you put a welder in the hand of a farmer and they'll weld up something, they'll fix something. Mm-hmm. You give them a new piece of equipment to go out there and work the soil or or give them a chance to read his on a yard, look at their animals, look at their pests, look at their diseases, you know, and they're usually pretty quick to to adapt to get the best out of what's on offer and what has to be applied and to meet the challenge of the time. But there's so much technology coming over that relies on entirely new knowledge or new instincts, mm. telecommunications, how to get yourself connected, um, how to run new sensors on your farm, you know, devices that they had no idea about, none of us really knew about 10 years ago. Mm. And, and farmers are busy people. They've got a lot on their plate, a lot to master, a lot to keep their eye on. So if there is a resistance, as you call it, to innovation and, and, and adopting new technologies... It's because they are so time poor, mm. they are, they've got a lot on their plate and they've got a lot of other challenges, notwithstanding the climate and the droughts, for example, that we go mm. through, going through right now. That it's just hard to get on top of it all at once. So there is an onus on me with my education hat on, being here mm. at the University of New England, 
to, to take some responsibility for this as well. We need to do more to demystify and to create confidence in our farming communities to try new things, even newer things than they think is currently new today. And so at the end of the day, I don't think there is across the board any form of pushback. I think we just need to get smarter and more integrative in the way we educate and communicate the sorts of innovations that we, we think our farmers could be taking on. Having said that, our farmers are not getting younger either. You know, what's the average age of an Australian farmer? Mid to late 50s now. Well, the ultimate agents of change in adaption and innovation will be the next generation that comes through. These young mm-hmm. kids, boys and girls, that are just so full of new ideas and want to try things new, that do things totally different. They're into social media. They're, they're, they're highly connected. They have an appetite for new technologies, gadgets that we didn't know about 10 years ago. They are the ultimate agents of change. But in the meantime, we have to work with our farmers who themselves are still innovating in their space to get the best out of what's available. And I imagine it's quite a lot of upfront costs for farmers to implement whole new systems. They want to be sure they know what they're doing if they're going to invest that, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, at the end of the day, right, you pull your wallet out, you really want to know what you're getting yourself in for when you pull your wallet out. And farmers are no exception. We're the same when it comes to buying cars when we want to buy a new piece of tech at home. Mm. So, um, So, yeah, that confidence comes into it. But at the same time, you know, there are some small steps you can take. And, you know, when people ask me, you know, how do I get into this whole ag innovation, internet connected things on my farm space, as mm. an example, um, generally I recommend they consider buying themselves an automatic weather station. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone wants one. Everyone needs one. They're always peering at the web to find out, well, what was the rainfall nearby? Gee, I wish I had something on the back country of my farm so I could tell. So I said, get yourself a, a, an automatic weather station. You've got to get it connected to the outside world. You've got to know how to access the data through the internet or get the app set up on your phone to get the best out of it. By the time you actually get it running to get the value out of it that you know you want out of it, you'll have probably tested about half a dozen new things around what it means to run a connected farm. Mm. So hence what I'm saying is don't overcapitalise. Don't spend brazillions of dollars on something that you may or may not get value out of. Start with something simple. Shell out a couple of hundred dollars, maybe a thousand dollars, if you ever get the money freed up after this drought, <laughs> and um, and get yourself connected and get the best out of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, what do I keep reading in the papers now? It's what, 97% of New South Wales is officially in extreme drought? Well, well yes, and I believe 100% is drought affected in <laughs> form or other. Yeah. So, yeah, now when you think of that, that's, you know, to go from 97 to 100%, to make the 100% call, that means that what you're saying is there's no part of the state that's not drought affected. Mm. Not, we're not slipping and sliding a few percent left or right here. Nothing is not drought affected. Mm. So that shows you the extent of what we're in at the moment and the challenge that we're facing across the state to manage it. Do you think these sorts of times make it more difficult for people to take on new approaches? Do they want to sit it out until things are a bit more comfortable? Well, let's face it. Um, I'm not going to say for a moment that that farmers didn't see this coming or that farmers aren't managing this. In fact, they they always keep in mind, you know, the contingencies around droughts. And, and, And a substantial proportion of farmers in this state are in there and managing it and managing it mm. well, or at least managing it in a way that they had planned to manage it. And that's a good thing. They're on track. They're on mm. plan. But at the end of the day, you know, there's only so much money that we've got to spend. And um, and feed, in some cases, has tripled the price. Um, you, we're moving feed from f- from significant different distances away, and even as far as WA. Mm-hmm. So it's not cheap. We're trying to keep our stock 
um, herds, our flocks as, as viable. We, you know, we don't want to destock if we can help it, but many people did took the decision to destock. So they're going to have to rebuild herds when the rains come again. So, you know, how much money do you really want to go spending on new technology, new kit, when you know you've got the fundamentals to, to get through? Getting feed into your animals now, rebuilding your herds if you've destocked in the future, if it rains, sowing your crops and that whole deal. So financially speaking, farming is really tight at the moment because mm. they've got their eye on the key priority issues. But having said that, um, you know, as one of my good friends who's in the farming game said when I asked him, when's the best time to start moving into ag tech or ag innovation? And he said, oh, easy, start when you're broke because at least <laughs> you feel the pain and, if, and you've got to spend money on other things. Why don't you throw a little bit of money into this as well while it's fresh in your mind? So it could be a new system for... For, for, for containing your water in tanks and for pumping it around your farm mm. so that you're not running out of water. Everything's trough-based. Uh, your fencing, so that you can really work on getting the best efficiencies out of your grazing system. Your animals, your genetics. Um, and, and ultimately, any other um, innovation that helps you get the best out of what limited soil moisture you've got, what limited feed base you've got, and, um, and get the best out of the markets that you're supplying. So... Sometimes now is the best time because we're all hurting, so do it now while you feel it. Will you forget uh, six months after the rains begin? But having said that, you've got to recognise that it, financially things are really, really tight cause, and there are priority things that need to be spent on. Mm-hmm. I imagine it's pretty important that you know, mess- farmers are hearing these messages from someone like yourself who can yeah. empathise with them and, and speak their language as opposed to talking directly to a, a geneticist or a roboticist. Or, or someone, for example, in the city. And, <laughs> yeah. and I'm not suggesting that there is no empathy in the city. I mean, the, I, th- I think Australia is pulling pulling together enormously when you look at the, the various relief exercises going. But I was asked in an interview with a, with a major city media outlet last week about, well, you know, what can we do to help people in the city um, empathise more with a lot of farmers? And I guess in a way... Well, is there any other way than to really say, okay, well, let's walk into a neighbourhood, turn the water off, uh, and, and maybe give them a muddy, a muddy pond to pump their shower water out of, um, stop their income, let them just live on what's in the bank account, or go and talk to the banks for more money, and also give them a thousand cats to feed. <laughs> and at the end of the day, you're sort of getting a sense of the sorts of dimensions that are that are that are weighing down on our producers and at the same time walk into those urban centres while everyone in that little region is suffering under those particular vagaries and ask the local shopkeeper how's business today mm. um, in other words it's more than just farmers who are de- and farmer families that are dealing with the day-to-day pressures of just you know functioning in this environment but also it's those many wonderful businesses and community groups that are out there in rural and regional australia that, that spin off a successful, healthy, vibrant, viable farming community. Mm. And so it's more than just farmers, it's, it's rural and regional communities as well. And they're a tough bunch, mm. a lot of them. Um, but it's a tough time. I mean, you mentioned at the very beginning of the interview that you would much prefer regional universities to city universities. It is, it's a bit of a shame that most universities are in cities. So I feel like, I don't know, like you said, there are these vibrant, curious, passionate communities out there what is it about a regional university well put it this way um i love regional universities and and i'm not saying for a second i don't like city universities but i've always (laughs) loved regional universities um for for two reasons one the physical environment 
you know, mm. it's, uh, it's, it's 15 minutes to work on the mountain bike um, with about 50 metres of tar, or I can spend eight minutes in the car if I really want to slum it, <laughs> right? And I might see three cars. It's just, you know, rural and regional Australia, it's just a totally different world. It's just, um, it's, it's open, it's fresh, um, and, of course, there's no hustle and bustle. So that's, that's what I like about rural and regional uh, Australia in general. What I like about rural and regional universities, and Australia has a wonderful network of regional universities. For example, a regional universities network run. Um, the regional universities uh, tend to be really in tune with their region mm. because they are living and breathing um, the same challenges that face the rest of their community. We all live in, in a country town. We all, um, we all know each other. We all know the people that live around us in the, in the region around us. We're all intrinsically aware, generally with one degree of separation at most, of the sorts of things that keep our region awake. And that's a wonderful um, uh, level of situation awareness that you have in a regional university that I don't believe that I would have if I were in a city university. Mm. But having said that, um, the thing I love about the city universities is, is the resourcing. You know, they've got some capabilities in those universities in their in their science and tech areas for example which are which we don't have in rural and regional universities um they have the focused the the focused workforce there nearby they have a wonderful melting pot of skills that we often struggle to get in rural and regional australia and hence to get into our universities out here and they're really keen to contribute more to issues of rural and regional um relevance so you know i just can have my cake and eat it too in a rural and regional university, hence why I've always lived in them, mm. lived amongst them. Um, but it's just what a part of a, a of a mosaic of, of wonder, which is Australia's university system. But uh, anyway, rural and regional universities for me. Well, you mentioned before that it, the next generation is going to be really important in adopting new technologies in agriculture. Is a lot of that just come down to getting young people into regional areas? Yeah. Look, it, you know, there's always uh, there's always that concern, and we hear it all the time. That you know, do do, do our next generation really know where their food comes from? Mm. And, you know, and how much do they really understand it goes into the into producing food that turns up on on their plate? And um, and um, having said that, there's a lot we in rural and regional Australia are ignorant about when it comes to um, you know the what goes on in the urban centres, right? But at the end of the day, you know, we've got these skills based in the city that can make a huge difference to rural and regional Australia when deployed. All our people, you know, STEM, science, technology, engineering, mathematics, just take that as a case in point. Um, and that's why it's always good to see um, our city universities um, developing engagement um, programs you know, and, and developing their own footprints in rural and regional Australia. At the same time, you've got these sort of these collaborative organisations, CRCs, collaborative, uh, uh, Cooperative Research Centres, for example. Food Agility is an example of one. Which yes, I'm, David, I'm, tell us about the Food Agility <laughs> CRC. Well, the reason I mention them is because Food Agility Cooperative Research Centre has got eight universities, um, four of which are what I would say to be city-type universities, um, universities of technologies and the ilk. So they're mm. really powerful engine rooms when it comes to technology and tech-based innovation and for regional, rural and, uh, rural and regional universities. Mm. So you've got that wonderful connection between the two different cultures and they are working actively together with a big, fast pool of industry partners to unlock the power of digital in food production. 
and a key beneficiary area of that will be on farm, into the supply chain, transportation networks, you know, tell me the story about my food, send the signals back about consumer preferences back to farms to help lift the whole agri-food sector. So that is, I mentioned CRCs and in particular food agility because that's an example of the sort of powerhouse we can build to bring those different academic communities together, city and country, to deal with issues of national significance, which happens to be in this case food production, which happens to in this case be heavily ensconced in affairs of rural and regional Australia. And you are, of course, the chief scientist for the Food Agility CRC. I am, so I'm onto another cake and eating it too. <laughs> because here I get the chance to um, work with the many rural and regional universities I've sort of grown up around and within over the years, alongside and integrated with Queensland University of Technology, RMIT University, University of Technology Sydney. You know, these wonderful powerhouses of, of tech-based innovation. And, um, and we're going to have fun for the next nine years doing it. And so has it worked? You, you facilitate collaboration between researchers at each of these institutions? How does it actually come together? That's, that's one of the roles. So as chief scientist, I guess my role is to, is to look over the research agenda of this cooperative research centre. So mm-hmm. therefore, it's a fairly substantial role. But yes, we have got a whole range of industry partners um, in the agri-food sector that have got challenges that, that, that could be met by unlocking the power of digital. It could be anything from improving the, the, the utilisation of our, of our pastures by grazing livestock through to the finance sector wanting to be more smart, more savvy, more supportive in, in financial products made available to the, the agri-food sector. Um, through to technology innovators that want to develop a new gadget to help make farmers' lives easier or to help make our transportation networks more efficient. So the aim of of this organisation and my role within the organisation is to bring these groups together, the challenges with the opportunities together, and effectively build research and development workforces to tackle the problems, come up with solutions, and dare I say even offer prototypes or minimum via product solutions into the marketplace. Mm. So it's a great end-to-end process and um, and it's a great opportunity to do that whilst retaining my core love, which is doing science. Well, that was going to be my next question. How much you know, physics do you get to do, you know, in the, these big high-up roles? Oh, look, you fly your desk a lot, <laughs> which is not flying a plane, but, you know, I'm getting at that age where I'm really enjoying it because I'm distilling the last 25 years of hard knocks <laughs> into, into hopefully some, in, some, some intelligible and intelligent comments. But, but to be honest, when you're talking about innovation and innovation in the agri-food sector especially when you're talking about tech innovation, it is all physics. It mm. is all physics in one form or another. And I, and I won't get into the old gem arguments about, well, biology and chemistry are just physics in action because um, <laughs> we always have fun having those debates with our colleagues. And I, I think get, we don't and, have a mathematician here. Yeah, <laughs> well, well, you can't, and you can't do it without lifting the hammer out of the toolbox, which is mathematics. <laughs> so it, we can go on for days and days, um, and that's always good fun, and I often get beaten down, but it's fun trying. <laughs> but, um, but no, at the end of the day, it's... Um, it is this stuff, farming, food production, and our agri-food sector is the ultimate STEM in action. Mm. When you look at it, there's some element of science, technology, engineering, mathematics, which is put to, put to work or in concert with other elements. And, um, and there's no better area to work if you have a passion for STEM or STEM-related areas. Mm. It's, really, it's good to hear you say that because I'm a recent adoptee of, of regional lifestyle. You know, I grew up in Sydney and... Um, and really enjoying being out of it and think it's yeah it is a great place to do science 
<laughs> well, look, in this connected world, we can go, we can get, we, I work in my office here in Armidale, and, and I'm part of a team that's spread all over Australia. We do our daily stand-ups at 10 to 9 every morning. Everyone's on the screen. We have a quick chat, just like you would in the office before you kick off your day's work. We, you jump a flight, a regional flight, or you're, or you're onto an international connection. You can grab a great coffee, beautiful food, beautiful people, fresh air, blue sky, and I'm here in Armadale. Now, anyone can live the dream from rural and regional Australia. Um, I still struggle to understand why you have to be living in a press of humanity <laughs> in a congested area to, 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 to do something like I do. I just think it's, the, it's having my cake and eat it too. Yeah, I just got to work hard and make sure I keep getting jobs around here. <laughs> stay connected, stay connected. And everything around us will help us do that. Mobile phone coverage would be a little handy from time to time when you're out in those black spots, but, but notwithstanding that, you can do whatever you like um, from rural and regional Australia. There's no holes barred, really. And, and can I ask how the new job's going a couple of months in? Well, Enjoying one month it? and a bit in. <laughs> Just checking my watch here. It's uh, it's a month and thirteen days. <laughs> I'm thoroughly enjoying it. It's uh, <clears throat> it is totally different. Um, in this role, I get to invest a lot more time than I've ever ever used to doing, thinking mm. and being creative. And um, I'm sure that will change. The job's getting busier and busier. Our family of researchers is growing day by day. But there's such a wonderful team in Food Agility. It's just wonderful to be part of that family, and I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Really am. All right. Well, people can find out more at foodagility.com. Is that right? Foodagility.com.au. Absolutely. All right. Well, I'll let you get back to it. Thanks so much for joining me. It's a pleasure, mate. Look forward to it. And thank you guys for listening. If you want to check out more, we're at insitruscience.com or at insitruscience on social media. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.